Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant and David Moore. It is, uh, as we're recording this, a beautiful Tuesday morning, a beautiful fall morning. You know, our fall here will last for probably about another 30 minutes. Uh, and that's, that's about how long it lasts. It's, it's nice, though, isn't it? It is. Then it'll go straight back to spring, and then we'll have a uh, be plunged into a hard winter at some point. Yes, uh, a, a winter that brings the grid crippling to its knees, and then we'll all be sitting around trying to we're burning furniture at our house, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's how that's how the uh, the the weather works here in beautiful North Texas. Uh, but that's okay. We, we can live with that. Uh, so it's uh, 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 we're a couple of days out now from uh, the Cowboys' huge win over the New York Giants, which may be the worst team in the history of the NFL, or at least close to it. Uh, you know, something I didn't bring up, David, and I, I feel bad about this was that. It's entirely possible that that team is feeling it's in the running for Caleb Williams and that perhaps that could explain why they played so poorly against the Cowboys, not only on little Tommy DeVito uh, starting at quarterback, but the fact that apparently nobody in the, in the secondary could cover anybody uh, who had a star on his helmet on Sunday. Well, if the Giants aren't the worst team in the NFL right now, the Cowboys may face the worst team this coming weekend when they go to Carolina to play the Panthers. That's Um, right. But yeah, this is a, you know, you look at this game and and Dallas beat a New York team that was supposedly at its best to start the season, 40 to nothing up there. So you knew Dallas was going to win this game, but human nature, you know, dictates that, well, Dallas was going to have difficulty locking in. They may not take, um, you know, them as seriously as uh, you would think, uh, or they should, but that did not appear to be the case. Uh, I mean, they were they were all over them again from the start, and, and while the final score was 49 to 17, that is the classic, it wasn't even that close game. No, sure, certainly it wasn't. Uh, they played really well, and a thing that was really surprising to me, and and uh, and Calvin uh, Watkins, when he wrote his uh, cider uh, about uh, Dak Prescott, said the same thing. When just kind of casually in the in the halfway through his press conference, I think it seemed like that Dak Prescott said that he would never felt more connected to his uh, receivers, to the offense, uh, to what they're trying to do. He just feels really good about all that, and with all the you know the consternation this year about the the Texas coast offense or as evan likes to call the texas toast offense um that all of a sudden Dak's just a big hero and i guess that's what we should think right considering the number he's been putting up the last few weeks well yeah i mean the 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 discussion from where it was coming out of the san francisco game when he threw for 153 yards and three interceptions uh you know the four games since i think he has 12 touchdowns two interceptions um, and he's rushed for another couple of touchdowns in there as well, and he's has got the highest team total touchdowns and two yeah. turnovers, 125 quarterback rating. He's averaging 338 yards a game and completing 72 percent of his passes. It's no, there's no doubt it's a it's a very nice resume, but I think we're getting to the question again that we that, that still who is it against? Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. what have they proven? You know, I, they've, that's going to be the question until those last six weeks of the season, really. Oh, and I would argue even then it's not going to answer it for a lot of Cowboys fans, right? Uh, they've seen what they thought were good teams going into the postseason that had a chance to break that divisional round ceiling that they've been unable to scale or shatter in 27, 28 years. And for different reasons, each and every time they've been unable to do it. So they're still going to be, look, even right now, there are, there's a contingent of fans that feel, okay, I'm just marking, you know, let's just mark some time here. Let's see how they do against the Eagles in that rematch uh, on December 10th. Let's see how they do on the road in back-to-back weeks against Buffalo and in Miami. Let's see about um, the new the new team that excites everyone, Detroit. Let's see what they do with them uh, that weekend after Christmas. And even if they the Cowboys run that gauntlet and come out in a good position, there's still going to be a significant portion of the fan base, and justifiably so, saying, eh, okay, well, now the, now it really begins. Let's see what they have. Well, that would be the case regardless, right? Regardless of sure. record. Yeah. That's going to be but, the case with this team at this point. But, but I, I say I also believe that that stance becomes more emotionally entrenched year after year. The scar tissue in the fan base continues to build, and there's a lot of scar tissue in the fan base, right? Again, you know, you saw that break through that scar tissue with the Rangers this year, right? And you saw what a what an effusive, joyful experience it was for the fan base. Um, Cowboys fans aren't anywhere close to being ready to commit or hope for that sort of emotional catharsis. Catharsis, you know, I think they're just waiting to say, well. Until we have some tangible sign that this season could be different, and what is that tangible sign that is getting to an NFC Championship game? Yeah, I, I think that the uh, the issue here for me in, in watching the Cowboys is that you know it's funny how they have built this home field advantage. You know, because remember the first several years there at Jerry World, it was just you know they didn't have an advantage, uh, not at all, and, and they and they really have built that now, so they have that going for them. Um, and, 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 and frankly, the way I look at it, or the way I feel about it, watching Dak is that since his rookie year, he's dominated the giants, right? You know, they, they've won now 13 out of 14 times against them. He I has not Dak lost goes, to them since his rookie year. Right. And so yeah. he, he knows when he goes into those games, I'm going to beat these guys, you know? I, I think Dak's confidence is never higher than when he's playing the Giants. Uh, and, and then I think a lot of that same thing in these other games as well. Um, and I'm just wondering how much of this, David, is confidence factor, confidence in maybe in the system and whatever it is that's going on. I don't know. I do think that, you know, in that Philadelphia game, uh, of course, if he had stepped out of bounds, if they hadn't had the, the screw-ups at the end of the game, you know, they, they had a great chance to win that game and, and, of course, should have won that game. You know, I don't know if we really talked about that much, but you couldn't expect the Cowboys to win both games against the Eagles. That No one should expect that. A split would be the best you could hope for. And so the fact that they lost there is, is not a, you know, catastrophic loss in any sense of the term. But except for the fact that when you're down there with a chance to win the game, you have to win it, you know, and and, and that from that for me was the issue there. Had they not done those things and had they won that game, 
Well, then people would all this talk about with Terry Bradshaw talking about Dak being a, a candidate for MVP and all these other things. That would all those things would all be granted. Anything would be on the table for the Cowboys had they won that game against the Eagles. Well, and to me, let's go to the, the Dak question here. He he's that there is such an irrational reaction to everything Dak Prescott does in a social media sphere, positive or negative, that that he can't even it's not even a performance in and of himself. Every single week, if another quarterback has a a poor game, you start you start to see people going, oh, Dak Prescott would be flamed by now. Why aren't people, you know, and, and now Josh Allen is the is the big why why aren't people getting on Josh Allen and his turnovers? I mean, look at what this is doing to that Buffalo team. They're 500 now. Why why doesn't he get this credit? And again, just judge him in and of himself, but now you can't even now I'm not even sure it's capable of doing that anymore because Dak Prescott is continually compared to either the top quarterback in the league or the worst quarterback in the league. And basically every single quarterback performance every week is just, it's crazy. Okay. But this is, this is not new, right? I mean, this is what Tony Romo was subject to. But it snowballs. Yeah. After the first five weeks of his career. Sure. Um, I mean, we keep, and I, I, I'm not saying this in a, in, in a derogatory manner or anything, but we keep having the same conversation week after week and year after year about Dak and about the Cowboys. And it just keeps coming back to the same basic premise, right? That we can talk all we want all season long about where the Cowboys are, and it's, it's great talk, but nothing matters until this team wins playoff games. I mean, that is where how you are judged as a Cowboy. Um, it's going to be all that much more apparent now that the one team in town that had never won anything has actually won something. And and so, you know, I just keep coming back to, okay, they played two teams that currently have winning records. They've lost both those games. I don't think that there was any shame in walking away from a game in Philadelphia with a loss. I, I get Kevin's point. When that game was theirs to win, you know, they could have proven something by winning it. My question is, the last six weeks of the season, right, they have that that stretch of Seattle, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Miami, Detroit before they finish with Washington. Can they prove anything to themselves in those five weeks that will set themselves up better for playoff success? Because that's all the season comes down to, right? I mean. Sure. Yeah. And, and very quick, first on your DAC point, I'm still just amazed. Everyone feels the need to relitigate where Dak is in the in the quarterback packing order every single week. And no one accepts, if you just say he's a very good quarterback who has not had postseason success, people, which is, that's just a statement of fact, no one will accept that. They come from it from these emotional polar, you know, regions and, and, and argue it. So, so that's not going to change until, like we say, to your point on the postseason. What can they do to build confidence in this stretch? Um, win some close games. You know, it, it's nice to blow out bad teams and take care of business and, and get into your feeding frenzy. But, you know, close games against comparably competitive opponents usually come down to key plays in the final moments of those games. And the difference you saw in Philadelphia 
was they made more positive plays late in the game than the Cowboys did. Now, the Cowboys made mistakes and still came back and put themselves in position to win the game, which was all admirable and shows they're right there. But they came out of that game knowing, oh, we could have, should have won, but they didn't win. It's about performing at key moments in close games that decide games. And when you have five games decided by 20 or more points already this season, you show you're a great front-running team. What they haven't shown is they're a team that can win close games against equally, you know, when the when the competitive scales are are balanced. And they're one and, and one in one score games, right? Yeah, exactly. And they they should be there should be some one score games coming up on this schedule. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine that you, you go through that stretch in December and, and look, Seattle's kind of right there on the cusp too, right? And and Seattle's gonna be a big game for both of those teams. Uh, for the pecking order in the in the postseason, as far as the conference record, uh, which is a which is a key tiebreaker, but you know that to, to me it's about winning some close games that they're in here late in the season, and getting the best seed possible. Um, you know, if the, the the problem is if Philly wins the division, they're number five. All the division seeds or take the top four. They're number five. And you don't reseed like other sports. They're going to have to be on the road every game. And now this home court, home field advantage that you fashioned uh, is just thrown out and you don't even get to play that card in the postseason. Yeah, this is a point that uh, and I tried to make in my column from Sunday's game. And I got toward the end of the column and, and I felt like I, I needed to to wrap this up, but it was just what you said, David, the fact that um, the Philadelphia game came down to the end of the game and the Cowboys couldn't put it away. Uh, it feels like, and that's what I was talking about earlier about the th- team's confidence. When they are rolling, when, they, when they've got a lot of points, they play extremely well. And when it comes down to those kind of th- uh, times, they don't play very well. You know, it's just like the end of the, the San Francisco game two, you know, two years ago in the, in the playoffs. And, and that just looked – that was a mess. It was a mess at the end of the Philadelphia game that couldn't get a playoff. It's that kind of thing that shakes yeah. the confidence of people in Dak's ability to win games. Because let's go back to an, an old quarterback with the Cowboys and Roger Staubach. How many times did Roger, you know, captain come back? How many times did he do that? You know, come back and bring – and really, you'd have to ask yourself, it's a little bit like when when we watch outfielders playing baseball. You see a guy making all these diving catches. You think, oh, what, what a great outfielder he is. And Ken Griffey, I don't think, ever dove for a ball that I recall. Is it because he, he did such a great job of getting to the ball, he didn't have to dive for it. And it's a little bit of the same thing with, with, with Roger. Maybe he should have put them in a better – uh, a place to win games earlier than he did, but the fact that he he pulled those games out of the fire repeatedly, well, that just endeared him to fans. I just looked like this guy when in the when you're when you got to win it, this guy can do it. And we haven't seen those kind of wins from back. Uh, we have you always heard that before. about John Elway too, right? John Elway was yeah. the same thing. And then and again, look at Rogers' numbers in all those years. Yeah, he was acclaimed as one of the best quarterbacks of that generation. Look at his regular season passing numbers to c- compare to some of his other peers then who who we don't talk about, and they actually had better numbers. Timing matters. When you perform, matters. And, 
you can't separate that. You can just look at the stats, and that's something. Look, I don't want to take it down the analytics road. Analytics is valuable, and 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 we all agree on that. But that's where just looking at numbers is the numbers when they're produced in those situations, and what the score of the game is, and whether or not the outcomes on the line. You can't tell me that executing a third and three in a tie game in the final minute carries the exact same weight as doing that in the first quarter of a scoreless game. Right. You can't do it because the the stakes are different, the pressures are different, and players respond differently in pressure situations. Yeah, they do. That's that's what it's going to be. I just want to cut to the chase on one thing for a second with you. I mean, I, I read your column, and look, there wasn't much context to you really did? add. Should, should I read it? Yeah. <laughs> for a change, you should read it. Oh, but okay, I, I yeah. read your column Monday morning, and there's just not much context to add after that game. But do you feel like 10 weeks into this season, do you feel like there is a realistic path in your mind for the Cowboys to play in the NFC Championship game? They've already oh, played the two teams. They're going to have to. The one, they're going to have to overcome one of those two teams to get there, right? Well, true, and that's always hard to, to beat a team twice in one season. Uh, yeah, I I always think that. Look, this whole issue of oh they can't do it. That's the same thing with the Rangers. It was there's no logic in that. You can't. What's, where's the logic of saying they can't do that because they haven't done it before? Well, that's that's not logical to say that. You, there are a lot of things that can happen here, uh, but. I will go back to the playoffs last year. When the Cowboys beat Tampa Bay and Dak played magnificently in that game, I really thought, well, here he, here he goes. You know, He has proven that he can do this now. That was a really good win uh, to beat them on the road and, and play. And you can say what you want about Tom Brady at that point in his career and everything, but he, he dominated that game. And then he comes right back out the next week and it looked like the same old stuff. You know, so I, I don't. And that's know the that thing with him. That was a big win on the road in Tampa Bay against Tom Brady, a quarterback the Cowboys had never beaten. But it's not considered a big game because of what happened the next week. And that's Absolutely. the thing with Dak. There had been he has actually performed well in big games, but that stair steps to the next big game, and then a lot of times it's not just he doesn't perform well or he performs well in that next game and they lose, is that he doesn't perform well. And that was the case in San Francisco in each of the last two years in the postseason. Right. Yeah, there's no question about that. I, I do think that, uh, that look, and I've said this all along, when people will say to me and they write to me, you know, constantly, oh, he can't win the Super Bowl. He can't He can't take them there. That That's ridiculous sure to say that. Yeah. Worst, worst quarterbacks have gone to the Super Bowl. There's no question about yes. that. You know, and, and and what David says is right. You know, and, and if people are com- uh, comparing him to Josh Allen, people are saying that Josh Allen is a question mark now. I mean, you know, my gosh, it's, the, it's just the fact that it's Buffalo. You know, it's not but, the but, Dallas but Cowboys why, that you're talking about. But why did Josh Allen why was he considered a level above Dak until the current conversation? Because he had because taken he his took, team deep into the postseason. He took he took Buffalo deep into the postseason. And, yes. and that is how you elevate yourself among the yes. tiers in NFL quarterbacks is with postseason victories. It's just that it's that simple. I've, it's always been the madness to me that like the greatest quarterbacks of all time were judged by Super Bowl victories. And I was like, well, 
it's really hard to get to a Super Bowl. I don't know that that separates a guy from being a great quarterback by how many Super Bowls they've won. But it, it is the judgment of how – it's how we judge quarterbacks. It's a very, there are very few guys that, that didn't get that far who are still considered great quarterbacks. Dan Marino is the only one I come up with, you know, because if you looked at the skill set, he was as good as any quarterback that ever played the game, but he only went to that Super Bowl the one time. Uh, you know, well, here, here, let me flip this argument for a second real quick, because I'm sure we'll talk about Otani maybe in our next segment. I mean, he's acclaimed, probably universally acclaimed as the best player in the game today. If his postseason career plays out the way it has to this point, will he be considered the best player in baseball history? Or will it be, well, but if you're that good, at least you injected yourself into the the conversation for a title at some point. And if he didn't do that, maybe is he not what we thought he was? So, I mean, this this on diff, on varying levels, I would argue this factors in in every single sport. It does in every sport, but not to the extent that it does in football with quarterbacks. And that's just always the way it has. Oh, been. it's a disproportional it's, weight with quarterbacks. I agree. No, no question. There's no no sport is the, is one position carry more weight as far as wins and losses and perception than, than quarterback does. No, I, also, don't, I don't think it's even close. It's uh, also because because sports. of like ignoramuses like me who can only watch the game from the perspective of the guy who has the ball in his hands. It's the same thing why pitchers get dissected so much. The guy yeah. who has the ball in his hands, who controls the game at that point in time, becomes a flashpoint. Not that many people understand offensive and defensive line play or reads and all that stuff. They see the guy with the ball, and they see what happens on that play. I can't tell you if all these mis- if, if the mistakes are Dak's fault, what percentage are Dak's fault, what percentage are receiver's fault, what percentage is scheme fault. All I know is that we constantly harp back to this. And quite frankly, for 27 years, we have harped back to ever since, you know, Troy Aikman retired. Is the Cowboys quarterback capable of winning a Super Bowl? Because that's how Cowboys quarterbacks are judged. Well, it's just, it is the history in this market, uh, right? And that's just the burden of it, uh, that there have been five Super Bowl, five Lombardi trophies out there. Uh, there have been some great quarterbacks, Hall of Fame quarterbacks to play and, and who have diminished the quarterbacks around them. Danny White, you know, got to the NFC Championship games, but nobody talks about Danny White as an all-time great quarterback. Three straight years, yeah. Three straight in fact, years. very quickly, I don't want to go too back in the old days. I don't want to talk about some other things here, but uh, I still remember Tech Schramm, general manager of the, of the Cowboys. We were talking one time, and we were talking about Danny White. And he said, you know, one thing he said, now I understand. He said, one thing you never really hear people acknowledge or talk about in professional sports with athletes is luck. Sometimes some guys just have luck in certain situations. Roger Stallback had it. Danny White did not. That's not to diminish what Roger Stallback did. But sometimes things just happen that make you look better. that are beyond your control. And the point he was saying there was like they would have beaten San Francisco with Danny White at quarterback in that NFC Championship game to go to the Super Bowl, and in their minds won it that year, if the catch, the Dwight Clark catch over Everson Walls hadn't happened. And, and you know, Trans point was Danny White had absolutely nothing to do with that play, but that play impacts his legacy. 
And you have more of those moments in football, I think, than you do in a lot of other sports. No question about it. All right, that's going to do it for our uh, uh, very, very quickly. Yeah, very quickly yeah. before we go on. Uh, uh, and the Cowboys acknowledged it publicly today for the first time. Uh, Leighton Vander Esch uh, yeah. will not return this season. And uh, whether or not he ever plays again is is the next question that, that he and uh, those close to him must address. Um, he has a condition uh, much like ended Michael Irvin's career, uh, cervical spinal stenosis. Um, he went on the injured list after that loss to San Francisco. They initially were optimistic, thought he would be back in, in four to five weeks and he would come back this year. Uh, it has not progressed. And now there's a discussion about whether or not he needs surgery. And at the time, he underwent fusion surgery back in 2020. And he's come back and he's played in 46 games since then and has played pretty well. But there's always an understanding if you if you need a second surgery, uh, there's a good chance your career, your football career is done. And uh, that is what Leighton Van Der Esch is currently working through now. But he, uh, he definitely uh, will remain on the injured list for the Cowboys for the remainder of this season. All right, that's going to do it for the uh, – Cowboys segment of our podcast. We're going to move over to the world champions uh, right now and talk about the Rangers. It still seems awfully weird to say that, doesn't it, Evan? World champion. It, it, it does. And I, you know, I went to uh, I, I, I went to Shug's Bagels yesterday over there by SMU and stopped in there. And as I was walking into the ba- to the bagel shop, they've got one of those chalkboards out front, and they've got like a little drawing with Snoopy and Charlie Brown out there and the Rangers logo. And I, I tweeted yesterday that it's like, this is us now. We live in a town where like your local bagel shop is, is posting tributes to, to the, to the Rangers. It just does feel weird. And I, I sent that, I sent the photo of that to Chris, Chris Young last night and he was really tickled by it. But, but it is like we have gone through uh, to take a place from a spot from your little study there, Kevin, we have gone through a different portal where the Rangers are world champions and the world around them has changed. Yeah, it, it justifies everything. Just what we were talking about with the Cowboys and Dak Prescott. It's the same thing. Once you win it all, then it then it just changes uh, the perspective on everything and everybody and what the possibilities are. It's an amazing thing. You know, uh, I, I, from my standpoint, I always look at it like, well – I don't ever dismiss the possibilities. If you've got a good team, I never dismiss the possibilities of what you can win. And I never look at it like, oh, well, you never have one before. I just think that's ridiculous to say that. Uh, but the flip side of that is only one team gets to win it all. And so every year there's a lot of disappointed franchises out there. And it'll be interesting to me to see uh, how Rangers fans look at next season. If they don't go back to the World Series, how will they look at it then? Will they look at it like, oh, my gosh, see, we're, we're back to what we were before? Will they act like, oh, no, that's okay. We had a great year last year, and, uh, and you know, it was fun this year, and that's all fine. I'd be very in- intrigued by the reaction of the fan base. I, I, look, I, I think that – and we're going to talk about rationality here, and that's not something that you normally associate with fans, but I, I've, I've said this for, for as long as I've covered baseball. Winning – is exceptionally hard. That goes in in any sport. Winning is exceptionally hard. And when the team takes you on a run, whether it was what the Rangers did in 10 and 11 or even 15 and 16, when they take you on a run, you should appreciate that. 
Um, but I do think that winning a World Series does change the expectation level here. It does prove that the previously unthinkable is realistic. And um, this team has all the pieces, both personnel, structurally, um, management. They have a really good combination here to have a a, a a run. And I think really the only way you take a big step backwards is if you go into next year and you don't you don't reach the playoffs. I think this should be the start of a multi-year run for the Rangers to reach the playoffs. That's why when I look um, uh, when I look at what the Braves did in the '90s, when I look at what the Dodgers have done now, yes, you would like to see those teams win more championships. But goodness gracious, a decade of winning and going to the playoffs every year is just incredibly hard. Yeah, it is. Well, and, and here's the thing, too, that I would say, and, and maybe uh, maybe I'll even write about this uh, one of these days, is that if a team is exceptionally lucky, one of the things that uh, David referenced in talking about what Tech Schramm said about Danny White, and gets some things that go right for them, and, and in one of the Rangers uh, World Series runs in which they only used nine pitchers, nine starting pitchers in one season, uh, then that's one thing. The Raiders didn't have that. They didn't have luck. That you know, they had guys going down left and right. They they had their they they lost two aces in the, over the course of that season. They lost their MVP over the course of this season for a significant chunk of time. They lost Adolis Garcia during the season and in the World Series. Uh, so there were a lot of things that went against the Rangers last year, including their history, and still they won. And they still won in five games in the in the World Series, which you know, let's talk about that for just a second. I mean, that's that's pretty phenomenal when you win in five games and three of those wins came on the road. That that is really a difficult thing to do. And the and the Rangers did all of that. Look, they defied everything during the during this postseason run. I mean, it was to to the the way the bullpen performed and the way they played on the road was just ridiculous. And again, Every button that needed to be pushed, whether it was a voluntary button on Bruce Butchie's part or a necessary move um, with something like Garcia going out and Jankowski stepping in, every everything on that run worked out. And that's what you need to win the World Series is you can withstand a lot of injuries over the course of the year. It's, it's getting to the it's getting to the tournament. You need a nice stretch of baseball for three weeks to, to, to win to win the World Series, and that's what the Rangers got. I, I I will just say this. They had an enormous number of injuries, particularly to high-profile players. But when you go back and look at total games missed over the course of the season, the Rangers were only 20th. There were there were other teams that that, that had a lot of injuries. Where really? I think, they were only 20th? Yeah, they were. Wow, that's um, I, I guess it's just the, the the name players that miss time. You always you know equate more time missed when they when they're out. It seems it's two things. It's the it's the profile players, and it's the the other part is that only one of those injuries was a season ending injury. Okay, um, and that was Degrom, and they 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 recovered from that fairly well. But in baseball, for me, if you get guys injured and you can tread water, and those aren't season ending injuries that ends up being a benefit for you in the postseason because you've got fresher players. And I think that's what we saw with this club. We saw a team that was fresher in October than most of its opponents. 
Um, and they don't, you don't plan for that. It's a, we in baseball, you don't really do the same thing that you do in the NBA where you manage workloads. Um, Although they probably ought to on some of these cases. I, well, I think, I think next year they need to with pitching in particular. I think you've got to, I think in, in a case like Evaldi, you've got to, uh, you want to try and keep him at about 150 to 160 innings, including the playoffs. So that means you're probably looking at about 125 innings during the regular season, which means you're going to sit him down for some period of time. Well, I think you could do that in several places, and I want to talk about that now, uh, Evan. Let's talk about the. We'll start with the DH situation, and of course, there's the you know uh, Shohei Otani looming out there, and obviously that's the DH of all time uh, that would be available to the Rangers there. But let's let's just say you know we don't know what's going to happen there. I, I'm going to say the chances of that are probably not great. I think they're okay. They're probably the Rangers' chances are as good as a lot of teams are. Uh, just because they won a World Series, and Otani obviously wants to win, uh, and those that that would certainly sync up uh, right there. But let's say that the Rangers didn't sign Otani. What are the possibilities you think that they might decide just to? Uh, and I don't think they're going to bring back Mitch Garver. Uh, what are the chances they just run people through that uh, uh, position? Give give Adolis a day off every week. Um, frankly. Uh, I'm all for them. Of all the guys they could re-sign, I'm all for them re-signing uh, Jankowski. I tell you what, I, I know he had a career year for the Rangers, and you can't always count on that to happen. But the guy's a tremendous defender. He's really fast, a good base runner, uh, a really good clubhouse guy. Everybody likes him, and why not? He's a, he's a great guy. Uh, and, you know, he helped them win the World Series this year. I don't I don't know how you, you, you keep from that. It, and then you, if you're sitting down one or two outfielders, a couple of days a week, he gets into play a little bit too. I think the big question here is, and I, I don't think they're going to sign Otani. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think this team can go out and sign another $50 million player. Um, I, I think that they've got significantly less money probably to work with this winter than they did last year. Uh, this team, remember, this team has spent $850 million on free agents over the last two winters. You sign Otani, you're now up to $1.4 billion over a three-year stretch. I just don't see that happening, especially with the TV situation being uncertain going forward. Um, and I, I don't see them wanting to be a second-time payor. I think where you're looking at the Rangers potentially trying to change their roster, maybe with a couple of trades. Um, you've got depth in the outfield. You've got Wyatt Langford pushing for the big league level. So if you've got Langford there and you've got Carter and you've got Garcia, it potentially makes Leody Tavares tradable for a starting pitcher somewhere. Um, that doesn't necessarily solve the, the DH situation, but I think there are some DH guys out there that are going to be a little bit more affordable and more efficient for them than trying to sign Otani to a $50 million a year deal and then not addressing the other issues, which are the bullpen and the, the, the rotation still needs some reinforcement. So from my perspective, like if I'm looking at DH, I'm looking on the free agent market, maybe it's somebody like Justin Turner. Um, you know, I think that's a guy who could play some first base occasionally. If you wanted to sit Nate Lowe against the left-hander, it's a guy who could play a little bit of third base occasionally if you needed to sit Josh Young down. Um, and it's a guy who could DH plenty. So the, the, those are the kinds of things I'm looking at. I, I think it's important for the Rangers to be involved in all these conversations now 
about guys like Otani, about guys like, um, well, I mean, Josh Hader and uh, re-signing Jordan Montgomery and all that. They are a championship team. They should have championship aspirations and players should want to come here. But I do also think there is a financial reality where if you're trying to if you're trying to create a long-term window here, you also have to say, look, we've got we're going to have a hundred a hundred million dollars in contracts in two or three years where guys are going to be in their mid thirties and starting to decline. We don't need to add to that. We need to start getting more. We, we need to get some younger, controllable, healthy pitching in here. And I think that's going to be a real focus for this club over the winter time. And that will, I think, end up determining how they go about the DH situation because they may end up having to trade an outfielder. If they don't trade an outfielder, Kevin, to me, you've got a great situation built in, right? You've got four outfielders for three spots, plus you potentially have Jankowski. You know, you could, if you go back and look at the splits, if you take Jankowski and place him, have him play right hand against right-handers and Robbie Grossman against left-handers, you had a very productive player last year. So it's not always profile. Sometimes it's like, value you know it's what you get value wise but if you don't go out and trade somebody and you've got Langford Carter Garcia and Tavares it's real easy to run three of those guys around in the outfield and one guy to DH each day yeah I I, I just kind of uh and I and I like the, the idea of Justin Turner and just for the reasons you said it does give you a guy that's a little uh some versatility that's one of the things that Chris Young has talked about liking to have that you know that was the one problem with Mitch Garber was that he doesn't give you much versatility, right? He can catch a little bit and that's all he can do. Uh, and his, and you have a considerable drop off defensively, uh, from Jonah Heim to Mitch Garber. Uh, and so uh, I could, and, and he can't run, you know, and, and that's, and that's another thing, uh, that there, there was, the Rangers could get a little faster. That would be good. Uh, it, you know, and get inject a little more speed in the lineup. That's one of the other reasons I, I I do like Jan Kowski. I kind of have a fascination with him right now, just because what they asked him to do after they kind of I don't want to say they'd given up on him, but they sat him down and they just said, "Okay, you've had a really nice little season here. We really like you being here. Now just sit down and be a good boy." And then they had to play him in the World Series, and what does he do? He comes in and he just and he just is terrific. You know, I, 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 you, part of your fascination is he's a wonderful guy and he's easy to talk to and he says funny stuff. Yeah, well, sure, absolutely. I'm all for that. <laughs> what do I care? That's like the you know when when uh, Frank Lux and I one time were discussing Barry Switzer and and uh, and Frank said, you know, all these sports writers are always complaining about him because they think he's a bad coach. He says, I couldn't care less. He's interesting. And I said, yes, my point exactly. All I care is just be interesting. Yeah, I, I do think that this team uh, has a, a, you know, what's fun about this team now uh, in in the building part of it, which I always love, you know, in, in roster building, is that there's not very many places to tweak. You know, this team is pretty set uh, all, all around the diamond. And and you, you, you look around and, it, and it's just a couple of things. Obviously, they need. I think they need uh, at least two more bullpen arms, right? Um, and if you could get somebody for the back end of that, that would be that would be terrific. I think they have decisions to make about the rotation and how they're going to approach that. How do some of these guys fit into these situations? They have a decision to make about Wyatt Langford next spring. Well, I'm sure he'll be invited to spring training, and we'll see how he does. I, I is your guess at this point, Evan, that he makes the opening day roster, or do you think he does not make the opening day roster? 
I, I uh, listen. I think that he he'd have to have a good spring to make the opening day roster. If if he if he has a poor spring, I think the Rangers would say, "Listen, there's no reason to put him on the forty until we're absolutely ready for him to contribute every day." But I also don't, based on what I've heard and what I've seen from far away, I don't foresee this guy having a bad spring. They feel like this guy is every bit as disciplined as Evan Carter maybe with more power and uh he's a really advanced hitter I, I think that whether he makes the opening day roster or not I think the Rangers are going to move forward with the idea that Wyatt Langford is going to be a part of whatever they do for the majority of 2024 the bigger question just still comes back to what pitcher are they going to promote and develop that will have an impact on the staff. Like you said, Kevin, you go all around the field, you can you can run a continued championship lineup out there without making a single change. I don't know how you get through 162 games pitching without getting somebody from the minor leagues to, to contribute at the big league level and without adding a piece or two or three on the market. Yeah, there's no question about that. That's the thing that's I think if there was one disappointment about this team in Chris Young's mind. It's the fact that they have not added pitching from the minor leagues, uh, not starting pitching. And yeah. and that that is a disappointment. At this point, you would have thought, well, for sure, Owen White or for sure, Jack Leiter or or even Kumar Rocker, maybe before he got hurt and had surgery. You know, those were all top end pitchers that they were really counting on and uh and everybody with thought that, that oh by the second half of 2023 for sure one of those guys will be in the rotation right and that's one and of those that, guys that was there, there was real thought going into into last year in the first month of the season that you know before the year was over Kamar Rocker could help in the bullpen for sure um and they just you know Jack Leiter did not develop and did not take a step forward until very late in the season. Owen White kind of treaded water and went backwards a little bit. Cole Wynn went significantly backwards. Um, and then they traded, you know, they traded Cole Reagans in what ended up being a necessary deal for bullpen help. But that's a guy, that was the one guy, it turns out, from the minor league system who might have been in a position to really step up and contribute and help this rotation. So um, on the positive side, look, I, I – Cody Bradford's probably a number five starter in the big league. Number five starters are still valuable, but he developed and he's he's shown himself to be a capable contributor in some role. I just think the Rangers the Rangers need somebody to come from within who is a bigger contributor. You can't keep going out and paying retail prices for pitching year after year after year. That's no. that's it's not a tenable situation. I do want to say one thing before we get out of the Rangers segment, um, and that is that on Thursday night, the MVP award will be announced. I think that the general consensus is that Shohei Otani is going to win this award. I also think that there is um, uh, need to just create, do a little bit of clarifying on some things. The MV, all, all the BBWA awards are voted on before the end of the regular season. It's probably why when this gets out to the public, why Bruce Bochy won't be AL manager of the year because the Rangers stumbled at the end of the year. They didn't win the division. Brandon Hyde and Baltimore did. If you were re-voting after the playoffs, obviously Bruce Bochy would have been the manager of the year. I think the same thing goes for the MVP. Um, 
But what this year has reaffirmed to me and maybe reawakened in me is that winning does matter. And guys who play for winners and who contribute to helping a team make the playoffs, I think that matters. I think that matters sometimes more than gaudy war numbers. And I, I, I do think we need to consider that going forward. Corey Seager played a big role in the Rangers getting to the playoffs, and we saw what he did. If you sat here right now and said over the over the regu- over the championship season, over the regular season, probably Shohei Otani was the MVP. If I asked you who was the most valuable player in 2023, the calendar year, I think you'd have a harder time saying that it wasn't Corey Seager. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. That's what happens when you win in the playoffs and you come up big in the playoffs, and he's done it twice now. Uh, the, the guy's making a Hall of Fame case. Uh, and I don't know that you could have said that before the Rangers signed him. I think he was a very good shortstop. Uh, but I, I think, think some of that was just because he got lost in the Dodgers in the Dodgers galaxy of stars, right? Um, he was yeah. just another star in a galaxy of stars. And now here he is. He's a second. He's a two-time World Series MVP, and he's going to finish in the top two uh, in the American League MVP. And he, you know, he nearly won a batting title this year. He has stepped. His game has stepped up. There's no doubt. No, no oh, question and why that. are we talking about him as a potential Hall of Fame guy? Because he won another world title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Funny how that That's works. That well, is how that is. works. Yeah. Well, the only four guys. There's only been four guys uh, other than him that. Uh, well, no, no, he is the fourth guy. He's the fourth. He is the fourth guy to win the World Series MVP t- twice. Bob Feller, Sandy Koufax, Reggie Jackson. You had the wrong Bob, but you were close enough. It was Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson. Did I say Bob Feller? I yes. Bob, Bob, Gibson. Bob Gibson. I did say Bob Gibson. Bob Feller was pretty good too. And Reggie uh, Jackson. Um, yeah. And Corey, Corey, like Reggie, won it with two different teams. So yeah, um, right. really significant accomplishment. Let's. Yeah. Um, I want to get to colleges now because I have a question I want to ask you, Kevin, but I'll let you take us in there. All right. Well, so we've uh, that's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. I don't know if I even said that right. I'm still stunned by the fact that I said segment. Bob Feller. Segment. Uh, segment. I also said Bob Feller instead of Bob. I think I've had a stroke. <laughs> maybe. Let's, let's take a break. We shouldn't joke about that at your age. Maybe, maybe. We all just revert to thinking about our contemporaries, Kevin. That's yeah, all. That's, it. <laughs> that's funny. All right. So we're going to talk now about the colleges, and we're going to talk about the fact, obviously, that they're Brian. Oh, well, no. Well, we could if we want to. Uh, the Aggies uh, decided to get rid of Jimbo Fisher, and all it cost them was $76 million. Uh, so. That is a phenomenal check to have to write. Uh, it, what I loved about this is that there are a, a million things to look at in this, a 76 million ways to look at it maybe, but is the fact that, you know, he gets 19 million within 120 days. And then at that point, he, he has to get the equivalent of, I believe it's $7 million for the next eight eight years so it's as the, the way i figured it out that makes march 12th jimbo fisher day for the next eight years it's like bobby bonilla day you know where uh he, he gets that 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 he would get that million dollar check from the mets every year in the in the middle of the summer jimbo fisher day it's an unbelievable thing to think that that's what has happened uh in the jimbo fisher saga you know when he was uh hired by the uh 
Aggies. And uh, I, I was, you know, everybody made fun of the contract. At that point, it was 10 years, $75 million, $7.5 million a year. I said, well, they, they at least went out and got a guy who'd won it all. Uh, and they had never done that before. Uh, so that, of course, is how we, we that is how we measure how we, great that's coaches. That's how we measure it is, is, have you won it or not? And so he had done that. And I will, I will venture to say this. Had they just stuck with that initial contract, it wouldn't have been so bad. What was really bad was that going into the 2021 season, uh, Ross Bjork, Texas A&M's athletic director, uh, was scared because of what Jimmy Sexton had finagled. That's Jimmy Sexton is Jimbo's agent. He had finagled a thing where it looked like that maybe he was in the running for the LSU job. And we thought that, of course, because Scott Woodward, LSU's athletic director, had hired Jimbo at Texas A&M. Uh, and so he gave Jimbo a bump. He converted that contract to another 10-year deal. At this point, though, worth $9 million a year instead of $7.5 million a year. So if they were having to get rid of Jimbo now, they could have written a check for $30 million, which is bad and would still be a record, but it's not $76 million. Uh, he cost them $46 million because of that contract extension. If that doesn't get Ross Bjork fired, I, I, I don't know what would. I don't know how they don't fire him at this point. I don't know why they would even let him be in charge of hiring the next coach. Uh, who at this point, you know, there's a lot of names that have come up. Uh, Dan Lanning at Oregon. I have no idea why he would leave Nike U to come to A&M. He's already making he $7 million there. He said yesterday there's less than zero chance that he would leave there. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason for him to leave. He's had a great program. It's fueled by Nike. Uh, he's got a chance to, to go, uh, you know, to the championship game uh, this year uh, if, if Oregon can keep it up. Uh, so I, I, I don't know why he would make the move to A&M. Uh, the more likely names, and it seems more likely if for no other reason than the fact that they're having to pay Jimbo Fisher $7 million a year, is that you go out and get a guy on the cheap. You go out and get a guy that you could get for $3 million or $4 million, and one of those guys might be Mike Elko, the Duke coach, he was a former defensive coordinator at AM, did a great job as a defensive coordinator there. It's very popular with Aggies. He, he would be a prime candidate. He's done a good job at Duke. You also got Jeff Trailer at UTSA. Uh, Jeff is dying for one of the, the big jobs in Texas, either at uh, Texas or AM. And he was up for the job at Texas Tech, did not get that one. Um, I think that. That might be a candidate for AM. It's just a matter of what the big dogs at AM want. Do you want to save a little money, save a little face, hire a, a, a guy who's not as high profile for that job? Or do you just double down and go out and just money whip somebody and give them a, a, a reason to come to Texas AM at this point? What's your purpose? What's your purpose in saving money at this point? Well, you're right. I mean, I was talking to somebody about it the other day, and uh, and I said, you know, okay, they have to pay $76 million, but look at it this way. When, when it was announced that SMU was going to the ACC next year, in the week after that announcement, they raised $150 million and just put it in the kitty. They said, here you go. Here's $150 million because we're not going to be getting any payouts from the ACC, right? So here you go. Here's $150 million just like that. That's SMU. There's a lot of money behind SMU, but it's a very small alumni base. A&M's alumni base is 10 times 
what SMUs is, and they've got a lot of money there. So yeah, you could go out and do that. And look, you can say all you want to about the A&M job, and, and, but they've got great resources. They, they have uh, everything you could possibly want from a, a, a infrastructure standpoint. They also have a great talent base. Jimbo, for whatever else he did wrong, piled up a lot of good players there at Texas A&M. And next year, Connor Wegman will be coming back, who I thought was a really looking like a very good young quarterback for them before he got hurt this year. So it's an, obviously an extremely attractive job. Any head coach out there would look at it like, I got a chance to win there. I'm in the SEC. It's, a, it's, a, it's in the middle of Texas. It's a great recruiting base. Uh, they obviously will pay a lot of money. If I get canned, I might walk out of here with a big payday. You know, so it's going to be extremely attractive. The question is, who's available? I mean, I, I don't know at this point if someone's going to come out of the woods here that we don't know anything about. There was a lot of speculation about the fact that perhaps A&M already had an agreement with somebody or else they wouldn't have, have, have fired Jimbo at this point. Um, I, I would think if that's the case, we might have heard about it by now. I, I I just have so many questions. First of all, I mean, I think in our conversations, Kevin, you indicated to me that you did not think that they would fire Jimbo because of the buyout. Am I, oh, am absolutely. I, I just thought it was – I thought – I look, here's the thing. It's not a question of whether they can afford it. Obviously, they can afford it. The question – I was also told it had to do with the price of oil at the time, a barrel, right? If it, if it was up to $100 a barrel, okay, sure, we'll fire him. There we go. And, and we don't factor that in enough. I mean, we really don't. Those yeah. are those those impact the timing of decisions like this when boosters have. And again, you, you can also put that money in a fund where it's not coming all out of pocket, right? I mean, it's actually the money was seeded earlier, and it kind of. Oh yeah, there, there are ways to do this. Yeah, and they and they've talked about this too. This is you know this is coming from Texas A&M Athletics. It's coming from the Twelfth Man Foundation. You know, this is no you know. Uh, I guess there is a way to look at it. See, is there any kind of tax money at all involved in any of this if it's coming from athletics? And I don't think that's the case. I think it is all uh, money they've raised. It doesn't make anybody happy. It's the question of it just makes us look bad. You know, the 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 optics are terrible that you're having to write this guy a $76 million check not to coach for you. You know, that those optics are awful. And I do think that's one of the things that Ross Bjork said is that we, we'll just never do anything like this again. And that's exactly right. To me, the question not so much is the big contract is that when someone comes to you and says, hey, LSU wants to hire me, what are you going to do about it? You say, we like you very much. If you'd like to come back, if you want to go to LSU, go to LSU. We'll see you later. And you okay. go out and hire another coach. They, they, should mean, not, uh, they should not have let themselves get boxed into that corner of being afraid of what was going to happen in LSU. Kevin, I've got – well, I've, I've, I've still got a, a, a list of questions that we won't get to, but I – I'm still stuck with this, and I have I have been stuck with this, and I realize that for other sports and for the business element, moving to the SEC was a great move for AM. But I still go back to this. Football is the bellwether for athletic departments. Was it good for the football programs at Texas A&M and Nebraska to leave the Big 12 all those years ago and set all this in motion? Has A&M benefited from it? Well, I think, you know, I was having this discussion the other day with someone about uh, uh, Texas and uh, and Texas A&M both. 
and the, the decision to move to the SEC for, for both programs. Let, let's jump off at A&M for a minute and just talk about Texas. Uh, and I do think that you, you cannot dismiss the possibility that Texas in the running for a college football playoff berth this year and then going into the SEC next year was not a fact, was a, was a factor in this the decision to fire Jimbo Fisher now. I think that that galls the Aggies no end to think that, look, Texas goes out, gets a new head coach, you know, and, and they're not paying nearly as much as we're paying Jimbo, and he's turned around the program, and they they may be in the college football playoff, may even win a national championship this year. Who knows what could happen? Uh, what is striking to me in college football these days is that decisions are being made that have nothing to do with what's in the best interest of our program here. Uh, decisions are being made based on, man, that is really cool over there what they're doing in the SEC. We we would love to be part of that. That just that's but it's just a, about that, money. That's, that's, well, it, there's money involved, but, but Texas and A and M both got all the money in the world. Those two programs lead the nation every year in revenues generated. They don't that's need right. the money. Yeah, they don't need the money. Uh, it, it, they can they got all the money in the world. Uh, the deal is they both want, and, and they can argue that all day long, all they want to. Uh, look how much more money we make now than we did when we were in the Big 12. Oh, that's all true, but it has nothing to do with it. Texas or Texas A&M wanted to get away from Texas. They wanted to be the focus on, on them being in this great league, and, that, and they certainly got that. There, there's no question that they got that. But I will also argue, and have, as I have many times, had they not left when they did and they had Johnny Mattenzell as their quarterback, they easily could have won the Big 12 those two years. And one of those years competed for the national championship. Uh, and I think they could have won a national championship with Johnny Manziel. So it might have cost them that much in the end. You know, obviously, it's the same thing for Texas next year. Now, as they go into the to the SEC, uh, obviously, it's going to be a whole lot harder. Why would you want to put yourself to that? Why wouldn't you want to stay in this league where every year you can be uh, a, a winner? You, you can win and you can go to the national uh, uh to whatever the playoff is uh, in the national tournament and however it's structured, you can be in the running for that. Why wouldn't you want to stay in that? Instead, Texas people all just said, you know what? We're tired of this dinky league. We we want to, we, we think that there is a perception here that this is not a good league. And so therefore we want to go to the SEC the big time and play over there in the big time. Won't that be fun? And I, I, and I the same thing applies to Nebraska. I mean, look at what Nebraska's football program has become. Well, both of those programs got tired of Texas, right? The, the Nebraska, Tom Osborne especially, he hated Texas, and he hated the perception. He hated the fact that when the Big Eight and the uh, and the uh, Old Southwest Conference merged, that was, to, to Tom Osborne's thinking, and probably rightfully so, that was not a merger. We threw you guys a life uh, preserver. We threw you four programs. We're all the Big Eight. We just added you four, you know? Those were life reserves. And, and, and so what happens? The the conference office moves to Dallas, you know, the middle of Texas in the Southwest Conference country. That that uh, ate at those people no end, that that's what happened there. But that's what happened. And so then Texas was still running the league. Texas did whatever it wanted to do, and, and Nebraska got tired of it and left. And there's no question that that is one of the reasons why they suffered going to the Big Ten. I, I think that the Nebraska had other issues as well. Nebraska, to me, is a very fascinating program. It's much like Missouri. One time it had been very dominant in, in college football, and then it had kind of just fallen off the map a little bit. It's a little bit of that to me uh, of, you know, then there's no reason for it. 
Missouri should be a really good program. They've got major metropolitan areas in the state, and they're the dominant program. I don't understand why Missouri doesn't win. But it's the same same type of thing in Missouri. They don't have uh, metropolitan areas. It's, it's more difficult in the Midwest to try to, to, to recruit. How do you get kids from the South to come up there and play when it's that cold? You know, there, there are a lot of issues involved in all of that. Uh, and so those those were problems for Nebraska. But there's no question in my mind, Nebraska made a mistake leaving. Colorado made a mistake leaving. Uh, I, I think in the end that A&M made a mistake in leaving. Now, you can say that they that how could it be a mistake if Texas is following them over there? Well, I think Texas is making a mistake. You know, I think they should have stayed in the in the Big 12 and Oklahoma would not have left without Texas. They were just they were going to follow Texas wherever they went. So it'll be fun and it'll be a lot of great football and 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 all that part will be really neat. I just don't know how long that's going to last with people from with Texas fans if you're you're just going to end up finishing third or fourth in the west or second or whatever it is. You know, I guess they they can wait for the day that that uh, Alabama when Nick Saban finally retires and then Alabama starts to back off a little bit and, and you know how long is that going to be? Is that is that three years, five years? What's the timetable there? I have one other question on this whole subject that was raised by our good friend Richard Justice. And that was, he wrote in Texas Monthly, I think yesterday, um, and I haven't seen your take yet on, on A&M and Jimbo, but he wrote that A&M has more advantages than any program in the country. Agree or disagree? A&M? Uh, I, I don't, I, no, I don't say that. I think they have significant advantages. I, I think there's perceptions sometimes in recruiting that make things, that might make things difficult. Uh, and, uh, they're, they're in college station. Well, that's, that's one of them. Every, everything else is wonderful, but they're in college station. That matters. It does matter, and it does matter. It's, it's less so than it used to be, but it, it was always a rural school, right? It's where the rural kids went to school. And that's not so much the case anymore. If you walk into any campus now, it's a lot different from when I covered colleges back in the 80s. Uh, Everything is much more homogenized, and so the, the campuses do look the same when you go to them, and it, and it is a different It's a great theory. atmosphere, a great culture. All of that can be true, but location matters. It location really matters. Does. And it and it does the culture at Texas A and M is different too. And, it's and peculiar. So, it's, it's it's well not peculiar. It's particular. It's very particular. It, it's very different. And so there are going to be kids or recruits maybe who don't feel like that. But I don't I don't know that it's an overwhelming thing anymore. I, I do think that especially with NIL, if you're raising enough money to to you know to pay these kids, well they'll they'll go there. That's fine. Now some of them, some of the guys that they brought in the last few years haven't panned out. For varying reasons, I don't know what those reasons were, but you have to always ask the question was, what was it like after they got there and how did they feel about it? So th- those are issues as well. I mean, that's the, the reason that Texas has always been considered uh, a better, I don't know, m- more of the, the more likely to win and why the media always talks about them all the time is because, A, they did win. They have won. They've won a lot more than Texas A&M has over the history of the program, won, certainly won more national championships. And so, uh, and it's in Austin. Uh, it, it's a, it, it seems like more of a, uh, I, I would just say Austin's more of a fun city than College Station. Uh, so I don't want to make my Aggie friends all mad about saying that, but that's that's just the truth. 
you can say what else you want to, depending on what your political bent is. Uh, but yeah, it, it it does make it more difficult. So I don't think that AM is. I, I think they have great resources there. Uh, it's a great stadium, it's big, huge, loud to play. And you know, Mike Leach always said it was his favorite place to go play because because it was just you know unbelievable. His fans are standing up the entire game. You know, uh, th- those are those are big issues. You know, there are things that make it an easier place to win, but they haven't won. You know, they they haven't won big. You know, they haven't won national championships since 1939. That's a long time uh, to go without winning a national championship. So until they start to do that uh, and they start doing that in the SEC, um, there's always going to be questions about, in my mind, about making that move and whether it was a good move in the end or not. Uh, like I said, it certainly seems to make it seem like the right move if Texas followed them over there. Uh, and Texas made a big deal at the time about A&M leaving and, the, and why the, uh, the rivalry died because of that. And yet here they are following them over there. I just think that everybody just wants to be in the big leagues. It's just like SMU going from the AAC, where it has a chance to win that, to the ACC. They're, they're probably not as long as Clemson and Florida State are in there. They're probably not going to have a chance to win the ACC. But they're as excited as, as anything to be there. Uh, and I don't really blame them. I was told that a very prominent booster uh, of SMU uh, called uh, a, a guy and said, have you seen a worse football schedule in your life? Talking about this last one with the AAC. And that's just the way they feel about it. Everybody always wants to pick on East Carolina on their schedule. Uh, and, and they don't feel like they're in the big time. Uh, and and it, if we know anything about the market in Dallas, and probably in Texas in particular, is that we want to feel like we're in the big time, right? We, we don't want to feel like we're winning something that wasn't as great. Uh, okay, if, if you win a conference title, what does it mean if no one really respects that? If, if no one's talking about the, you know, the Big 12 like they talk about the SEC or the Big 10. So I, I think that those things have, have uh, outweighed maybe logic uh, sometimes in, in what you want to do here. Um, and, uh, and and probably to the detriment of these programs in the long run. I guess that's going to do it for us. All right, uh, we got everything we need. Do we need to talk about anything else, boys? Uh, we right. could have talked about Texas and TCU, but I, this, this was fascinating. I just find the whole A and M thing really fascinating. I hope yeah. listeners did too. Well, I hope so too. I will say this: I thought the first half of the Texas TCU game I was there, I thought, well, Texas is making a real case here. And then in the second half, and they did virtually nothing and they gave argued up, against their case. Yeah, they argued against their case. Yeah, they gave up two touchdowns in the last six, six minutes of the game and put everything in jeopardy. I I just don't know. I tell you what, uh, the I, I see a lot of similarities between Texas and the Cowboys. Uh, both. <laughs> Very talented programs, uh, both with with questions at quarterback about how great these guys are, can they win it all, uh, and and just and put themselves in positions where you, you you think you can believe in them, and then the next minute you think, oh no, this this team is a disaster, you know. So uh, I, I I I no, I will just say as, as we're closing here, uh, I think that Texas chances of making the the tournament are only about 50-50. And I think the biggest problem is that there's too many conferences in front of them. It's not just the the undefeated teams, because at some point, uh, if you're in the same conference, you're going to beat you know each other up, and then you're only going to end up with one. Well, there, there are four conferences in front of them, and that's going to make it really problematic for them at this point uh, to get there. And 
I got to think at some point when you're uh, struggling to beat uh, what is now a four and six TCU team where you're holding on to beat them, that, that doesn't build much for your case either. So uh, I'd like to see Texas uh, do that, not only because, you know, it's uh, one of the local teams, but because uh, that would be fun to go to New Orleans uh, for New Year's. Uh, I, I think that yeah, can go anyway. Whatever. <laughs> or maybe we'll just go anyway. There we go. I like that. Good thinking, David. All right. That's going to do it for this week. We appreciate it. We'll, we'll be back next week, uh, and uh, and we'll have more to talk about, and we'll see how much closer the Cowboys are to being the team we think they should be, uh, and the more clarification on the uh, college front. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thank you, and we'll see you next week.